Welcome to this special bonus episode of The Alaska Myth. I'm your host, Caitlin Armstrong, and this episode features an extended interview with Professor Tia Tidwell, who appeared in our first episode. I am an assistant professor at UAF in the Department of Alaska Native Studies and Rural Development, and um, my Nupiak name is Puya. Back in the summer of 2022, Tia and I talked about her work studying settler fantasies. And our conversation took some interesting turns. We talked about how settler fantasies and settler legal structures often share the same logic and how these stories impact Indigenous people and shape Alaskan identity today. You study settler fantasies. Um, what is a settler fantasy? So I think that settler fantasies can manifest in many different forms. But generally, settler fantasies um, have a settler protagonist who has come from somewhere else and is seeking belonging. And a settler fantasy always achieves belonging in one way or another in the resolution of the story and how the protagonist, the settler protagonist, achieves belonging, takes a myriad of different forms, but it often coincides with this inability to imagine Indigenous people in the present or the future. It also coincides with their inevitable disappearance, and it often imagines place and land as being empty and ready for um, settlers to be able to put down roots by using imagination to dispossess land you don't have to face the reality of active or violent dispossession that often is actually what's happening in real life right because if the land is already empty quote unquote Uh, It's very convenient, I guess. Yeah. So what would be some examples of famous settler fantasies? The one thing that I'll caveat this is that every single settler fantasy that I have written about, um, I read first and I loved them. Every one of them, they're good storytellers. And I think it's really important to critically examine those stories But that doesn't mean that I didn't love those stories, and it doesn't mean that I am throwing any particular author under any kind of bus. Um, So if I think about popular settler fantasies in Alaska, um, one would be The Snow Child by Eowyn Ivey, Ordinary Wolves by Seth Kapner, and Julie of the Wolves by Jean Craighead George. It was actually really interesting. I had gone down to Girdwood and we had gone into the big hotel, Alieska, and I went into the gift shop and just in a neat line, there was every single book that I had written about or was writing about just together. And that is how Alaska is portrayed both to Alaskans and to those who are interested in Alaska as the last frontier. 
Yeah. Um, well, that's kind of like a next question is um, how do these kinds of settler fantasies uh, that it sounds like are often portraying spaces as empty land and uh, constructing this feeling of belonging uh, for settlers, how do they shape the way that people think about Alaska? Hmm. You know, I think that everyone wants to have an origin story. Um, and origin stories can take many different forms. But within the spaces of these books, different pathways for belonging are imagined. Like the work is put into how and why a settler can belong um, to a place or become indigenous to place. One interesting notion that's examined in settler fantasies is notions of property and how land becomes property. And if you go back to um, Western theory, you have John Locke's labor theory of value. And that theory is just that when a person mixes their labor into land or encloses land, then that can become property. And you see this played out in Western expansionism through the U.S. A lot of the reason legally that indigenous people couldn't have title to their own land is because it was theorized that they weren't using it properly. And so appropriate use in European theory is agriculture or enclosure. And so even though agriculture is and has been a part of indigenous cultures throughout the U.S. and in Alaska, um, agriculture is one way that land leaves the common and becomes property. And so when you think of settler identity and, and settler fantasies, um, agriculture is one way that settler identity can be built up. And recently, there was a really big, like, I don't know what you would call it. Um, there was a discussion happening because the Colony Days Parade, Colony Days Fair, I'm actually not sure. I'm not familiar with it. It's a festival in Palmer. Mm -hmm. Festival. Okay. They tried to change their name to um, the Braided River Festival, uh, which is also a beautiful name reflective of place and taking into consideration the um, Denina history of that place as well. I was reading different op-eds and articles about what was happening just because I thought it was really interesting. And people kept saying, I'm a fifth generation colonist here. And, you know, I think everyone deserves to feel like they belong, but I don't think that that should come at the cost of another person belonging to a space as well. And when you say, I'm a fifth generation colonist, I'm, I've been um, farming here for five generations, it's a way of saying, I actually belong here in a way that other people don't belong here. Yeah. How is that, or like you were saying earlier, this sense of um, settlers kind of trying to make themselves indigenous to a place accomplished through these fantasies? Yeah, uh, 
so many different ways. It really each settler fantasy has its own way of making the settler protagonist indigenous to place. Tia says some settler fantasies do this by establishing something called autochthony. The term means being born of the earth itself. Australian scholar Rob Garbutt theorizes about the concept in his article, White Autochthony. Tia says in settler fantasies, when someone needs to have an authentic claim to Alaska, they'll often have a autochthonous claim to Alaska, and that'll be um, through some kind of magic. In the Snow Child, Faena has a autochthonous claim to Alaska because she was born from snowflakes. And that's also, uh, incidentally, the origin story of the Denina people, or one of the origin stories of the Denina people, is that they came from snow. In Don Reardon's The Raven's Gift, uh, the settler protagonist of the story is a school teacher that comes to Alaska. And he has this idea that he is probably Alaska Native. The only evidence in the story that he might be Alaska Native is that his grandfather was stationed on the Aleutian Island during World War II. And the protagonist of the story does not has never met his grandmother. And then he comes as a schoolteacher to Alaska. His motivation um, for coming is that he wants to know if he's belongs to Alaska um, because he doesn't know who his grandmother is. This concept of having a, an indigenous grandmother is um, <laughs> it's explored by Vine Deloria in Custard Died for Your Sins, who writes about the Indian grandmother complex. And he talks about this like mythical founding that having an Indian grandmother gives you. Um, and <laughs> that trope has been in America for so long, all the way back to how race was even imagined or formed in America. So in the early U.S., you have European settlers, you have African slaves, and you have um, indigenous peoples. And um, race was constructed in disparate ways. For instance, um, black people, the race was imagined as expansive. And if you go back to the one drop rule, right, if you have one drop of African American blood, then you are black. Um, and that was for a reason, right? More black people is more slaves, is more wealth, um, is more enslaved labor. But indigenous people were a problem, right? Indigenous people stood in the way of settlers' access to land. And so indigenous people were imagined as eliminatory, right? And so if you're, I'm putting air quotes here, you can't see it because it's audio. Indigenous blood becomes diluted over time. That's why we think of like, I'm half Alaska Native or a quarter Alaska Native or an eighth Alaska Native, right? You become less and less indigenous over time. And that's blood quantum and the politics surrounding blood quantum were created, invented for a reason to eliminate indigenous people over time. Inevitably, using the logic of blood quantum, indigenous people will go away and will have unfettered access to land. 
But the early settlers um, had to come up with this way to understand themselves as apart and anew from whence they came, right? So they're not European anymore. They're American. And how does that get created? Well, in the Virginia legislature, when they were creating these early laws around um, the one-drop rule and blood quantum, they came up with um, what's called the Pocahontas exception. The Pocahontas exception stated that anyone with one-sixteenth or less indigenous ancestry would be considered Caucasian. And the reason is, is because all of the legislators were white but they all claimed that they were descended from Pocahontas. And millions of people in the U.S. claim to be descended from Pocahontas. And <laughs> it's really fascinating, right? Because Pocahontas died when she was 22. She had one son. I'm sure she does have actual descendants, but probably not millions of descendants. But this was a way of the indigenous blood, as you have it, um, mixing with European blood in order to create this whole new identity in the U.S., the settler identity, the American identity that's separate from the European identity. Uh, so if you bring that back to Alaska, um, the Ice Palace, for instance, or even the Snow Child or Raven's Gift, you have... Um, the gateway to indigeneity is often held by uh, these young indigenous women kind of on the precipice um, between adolescence and womanhood. And I just think that it's really fascinating that this happens over and over again in the stories that we're creating about now, that indigenous people are going to inevitably disappear, but before they do, they're going to leave a little bit of trace that's going to be mixed with... Um, settler blood in a way that creates a whole new identity. Uh, so in the Raven's Gift, right, he imagines his connection to place through this um, indigenous grandmother. Mm. It's really interesting. I mean, people love to read these stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> It just hits on this kind of nerve that we have or something, anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, you talked earlier about how these stories are so seductive, right? Um, but it distracts from the violence that's, like, really necessary to enact a colonial project. Yeah. So there is real violence that happens uh, in colonization and through settler colonization. If you look at the history of Alaska, we have real violence that happens. Um, but I don't think that we should discount the work that the imagination through these stories brings because it, even though they're stories, they have such real consequences. Blood quantum, for instance, it's fiction. It's complete fiction that we have created as a society. And because of that, you have indigenous people um, who have picked up that idea of blood quantum in a way that's, that is unsustainable. You cannot have eliminatory blood quantum and then continue into the future. And so the imagination, it really does, it has real social, historical, and political consequences. Mm -hmm. If you think about westward expansionism in the U.S., 
What was actually happening is that um, the U.S. government was negotiating treaties with indigenous people through many different means, coercion, and all, all sorts of not great ways. But what was happening at the same time is that settlers who are coming to the U.S. for land, that was the driving force for coming to the U.S. is access to land. And so regardless of whatever treaty had been negotiated, settlers were moving west and they were in their wagons and they were claiming or I think a more appropriate word would be squatting on land owned by indigenous people and they were bringing their families with them. They were bringing white women with them. And then when indigenous people were fighting back for land that was being squatted on, um, the way that that was articulated was that those settlers were defending their home, defending their women. And that is just a way of completely flipping how we view what has happened. And so when money is appropriated from the U.S. government to go and invade indigenous land, the way that it's being articulated is we're defending homes. We're defending women. Um, And so that's just another example of the way that you talk about something has these real consequences because that same story could be told from the other perspective, right? Indigenous people defending their homes, defending their families from an invading army. Yeah, exactly. You know, frontiers are violent places. Yes. But when people talk about the last frontier, that violence is left out. Why do you think that violence is written out of the idea of the last frontier? Because it's uncomfortable. Um, Because if you acknowledge the violence of the last frontier, there's this automatic defensive response to try to figure out whose fault it is and how they can be held accountable. And the truth is, we're all accountable to the history of this place. And we all need to be reimagining a future where Indigenous people can continue to thrive. Another thing we can talk about in terms of land in Alaska is if we look back to um, early conservationist efforts in the U.S., um, we can think about how wilderness is a land use concept. And so a lot of people will recognize the name Aldo Leopold. Um, He was an influential thinker and conservationist Uh, basically to whom modern-day wildlife management in the United States uh, wilderness system is attributed. So according to Leopold, wilderness and nature are the vehicle that allow Americans to construct their identity as a part and a new. And so Alaska, um, having all of this wilderness, um, which, again, I'm like air quotes, um, Alaska has all of this wilderness and It has to stay wilderness in order for Alaskans to be able to keep their identity, their their idea that they've created for themselves 
Um, and you can see that expressed in so much contemporary Alaskan culture. One example is the Stampede Trail bus. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Christopher McCandless's bus? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we all know the, the basic story of, of the bus. Um, and what's romantic about it is you have this young man who really wants to live like with nature. He wants to like go into the wilderness. And I think that it really messes up our vision of what Alaska is when we realize that it's not wilderness. Every single place that you see in Alaska has a human lived experience that exists through time and in the present and hopefully into the future. But that really messes up the way that we think about who we are as Alaskans when we are forced to reconcile with that. And so what we choose to do is pretend like it doesn't exist. And so although a lot of us will know what the Stampede Trail bus is, we probably won't know that that land that it was um, removed from has lived history with the Atna people um, and the Denina people already. Mm-hmm. I guess so much of popular Alaskan identity is thought of as these like wilderness types and these rugged individualists who kind of set out into the wilderness and try to conquer nature in one way or another. <laughs> and I just wonder how that compares with Alaska Native worldviews. Yeah, that's that's a completely foreign um, concept. It shows up in every settler fantasy. You have some component of making it on your own, surviving in the wilderness. And that's a really attractive um, idea. In Alaska Native culture, um, to be outcast, to be like thrown off from your community that is a punishment. The goal is to be part of a community surviving together with each other, for each other. Um, there isn't that same kind of romantic notion of going out and doing it by yourself because that's um, how people died. Like the worst thing that could happen to you is that you were cut off from your community. Yeah. This is this is kind of a uh, like a big question, but like... Again, just going back to this idea of this conversation about who is and isn't a real Alaskan, like, what are the consequences, do you think, when settlers make themselves the arbiters of who is and isn't a real Alaskan? That is a big question. Um, And it's also a really good question. I think that when settlers are the arbiters of who is and who isn't a real Alaskan, that is a dangerous and unstable place for Alaska Native people. Because according to settler law and logic, Indigenous people cannot continue to exist into the future they will inevitably disappear. And so if we don't reconcile with that, and if we don't recognize that Indigenous people can 
um, decide for themselves who they are and what makes them indigenous, then you're just falling into that inevitable disappearance narrative that has been created and is continuing to be enforced. When you recognize that the patterns of colonization and settler colonization that happened throughout the world also happened here, then two things happen. You recognize that there are structures that have been built from that pattern of settler colonization. And when we recognize them as structures, we realize that we can dismantle those structures. And the other thing that happens is you can look at the resilience, um, which is the tricky word because I think there are certain groups of people who are tired of having to be resilient. Um, When you look at the resilience of indigenous people in their responses to those patterns that have been implemented against them, then you can kind of get power from that. You can say, well, look, this is what these other people did and maybe we could try that here and see if it works against the same same structure Mm. of colonization. Talking with Tia cemented for me how the imagination has real consequences. The ways in which we imagine Alaska can entrench the structures of colonialism or help us envision another way forward. In the essay, Contemporary Creative Writing and Ancient Oral Tradition, Clinkett author Ernestine Hayes says, stories perpetuate the values of the culture from which they spring. And so I'll leave you with this question. Who created the media, books, movies, stories, that shape how you see Alaska and how you understand what it means to be Alaskan? And whose values do those stories perpetuate? You've been listening to a special bonus episode of The Alaska Myth. I'm your host, Caitlin Armstrong. This episode was edited and produced by me. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Tia Tidwell for sharing her research on settler fantasies. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving us a review. To learn more about our podcast, visit us at www.thealaskamyth.com.